for the past three weeks, we've been talking about this idea of unity and uh, how Scripture calls us as a church to be unified, that we, though we are many parts, we form one body. That body supports the head, which is Christ. And so as a church, we've been talking for the last three weeks about the importance of that unity. Today, I want to kind of go in a different direction, and we're not going to talk specifically about our local church, Synergy Church, but rather we're going to talk about the relationships within our church. And so we're going to talk today about marriage and sex and how they pertain to unity uh, for us as individuals. Uh, let me give a couple of disclaimers. I know that some of you in the room are not married, um, and that doesn't disqualify you from this message. And so uh, my hope and my prayer is that if you're in the room and you are married, that today would be extremely helpful for you, that you would leave here having a direction that you could move in with your spouse that would make you have a healthier, more united marriage. I think that we all can attest that marriages are difficult and we all could receive more unity in that area. But if you're not married, um, if you're waiting to be married or if you're hoping to be married again, whatever your situation or circumstance look like, my hope is that today would be helpful in you preparing for that marriage. That when you get married in the future, no matter how long it is from now, that you would have kind of a vision of what your marriage should look like that you could work within so that you could experience healthy unity inside that marriage. Um, second disclaimer that I want to give today is that uh, we believe here at Synergy in the New Testament definition of marriage, which is uh, between one man and one woman uh, for life. And so obviously that isn't the case for our society as a whole. If you're here today and that definition doesn't fit you uh, specifically, uh, again, that doesn't disqualify you from today's message. Hopefully today's message will be helpful for you. Maybe you have had a marriage that has failed. Uh, maybe you uh, are in a situation in life that doesn't line up with that definition. And we simply want you to know that we're glad you're here and there is nothing today that is intended to be a finger pointing at you or a sense of judgment coming towards you that we are simply Simply today going to open God's word and talk about some scriptures and the impact that they can have on our lives as we pursue unity in relationships within the church. And as relationships become healthier, we believe that our church will become healthier. And that's the goal is that we would be a healthy, united church that would make Christ known in the lives of people far from God. So you ready to go? We're going to jump right in this morning. We're going to start in the very beginning of scripture in Genesis. And we're going to begin with Genesis chapter number two. This is uh, ultimately, the first wedding ceremony ever performed, and God had the uh, honor of officiating that. I guess I should say Adam and Eve had the honor of having God officiate their wedding. And so we're going to kind of start there, and then we're going to see where the story goes, and then we're going to jump into some New Testament scriptures that are going to be helpful for us as well. So Genesis chapter number 2, I want to start with verse number 7. It says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That we believe that God literally spoke, uh, used dust of the ground, and formed man from that dust. Let's jump ahead to verse number 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Um, I always like to point out when I'm doing marriage premarital counseling with couples that have asked me to officiate their marriage that it's important to note here that God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. So if you're a single lady in the room and you're looking for a husband, find one that has a job and they'll be on the path that will be helpful for you in life. I just always like to point that out. Um, God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. Men, we have a responsibility 
in life to be providers. That is a God-instructed and ordained role that we play, and so we have to feel the weight of that in our families. Verse number 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Some versions of the Bible say a helpmate that is suitable for him. Some people ask me from time to time, why should you get married? And, and of course, there are a plethora of reasons that we could logically describe as a reason to get married, whether it's a financial reason, whether it's, um, uh, whether it's you want you know, tax deductions or whatever that looks like, uh, whether you uh, feel like you're in love with your best friend and want to spend your life with them, uh, whether you, um, whatever you have, but the ultimate reason that God designed marriage was for companionship. That we would have people in life that we walk with that help us live the lives that God's called us to live. Now, we're going to talk in a little while uh, from some scriptures that Paul writes in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, and Paul never was married. Okay, And Paul actually encourages single people not to be married from the standpoint of their ministry in this world is more effective without a spouse in the context of the time that they can commit to the ministry specifically. So if you're in the room and you're not married, okay, that's not to say that that's not God's plan for you. It's not to say that there's something wrong with you is why you're not married. I know that some people kind of, they beat themselves up and they get impatient and they want to settle. Um, I would that type of person at some point in my life and God helped me stay patient and persistent in pursuing him that he ultimately blessed me with the woman of my dreams and so I just want to encourage you if you're in the room and you're saying I want to get married but I haven't found somebody how can I make that happen and I would say don't rush it it's the most important decision that you'll ever make but God will send someone he will specifically bring someone into your life that is designed to be a helper for you. Let's jump down to verse number 25. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. I love God's design in instituting marriage. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but um, I was made aware of this some years ago before I got married. And, and I always share this with couples that have asked me to officiate their wedding. That God's design for marriage is a design that complements one another. Okay, so, so notice this. Adam was alone. He needed a helper. There's no one suitable for him. Of all of the animals that God created, there was no, no one suitable for him. So God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and he removed something from Adam. And out of what he removed from Adam, he created something for Adam. Okay? Now, if you're a man, if you're married, you need to understand that what you're missing in life is found in your spouse. 
What you're missing in life is found in your spouse. I know that we as men sometimes search for things that we feel like we're missing. We, we search through uh, monetary things. We search through workplace things. We search through popularity. We search for name recognition. We have a lot of things that we pursue in life to kind of fill voids that we have. But the truth is, is God has given us a helper that fills the void that he's left in our life because his design is that what we feel that we lack in life is to be found in our spouse. And then on the other hand, women, the very source of Eve's existence came from Adam. So her source is her husband. He has everything that she needs to be healthy and whole. He, he possesses everything that she needs to be made into what she is designed to be in life. So women, you don't have to search anywhere outside of your husband to find everything you need for your source in this life. And so together, man and woman, by God's design, complement one another in such a way that there's this relational tie that binds them together. Now, this is important because the title of this series is one, and the next verse is, is really, really important. Verse number 24. For this reason, for what reason? For the reason that man needed a helper and that God designed by his immaculate um, plan a dependency upon one another. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Two separate lives merged together to become one. This is more than a, a wedding certificate that you hang on a wall or stick in a drawer that, that allows people to know that you're officially married by the law of the United States of America or the state of Georgia or wherever it was you're married. This is a spiritual miracle that takes place by which God unites two individuals and two separate individuals become one. Become one. It's a beautiful design, and I actually love verse number 25, where it says the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. I think that's kind of the icing on the top of the cake of this marriage thing. But what I want us to understand today is that there are many times in our relationships with our spouses where we don't feel as if we're one. That we feel as if there is division in our relationships. Marriage is difficult. We know that because at least half of every marriage, specifically in the United States, end in divorce. They don't last. Marriages are difficult. People get married for a lot of reasons, but I believe that if you plan for a wedding instead of planning for a marriage, then you're planning to fail because so much time and energy and thought goes into colors and dresses and decorations and venues and singers, but I don't believe that a lot of people in today's culture put a lot of planning into an actual marriage, and that's the downfall, I believe, to marriages today, that we have this difficult situation that we're committing to, that we're becoming exclusive one to another. God is merging two lives together. We're becoming one, but the world tries to pull us apart. And there's lots of obstacles along the way that could cause division. And to be honest with you, there are a lot of things that I could talk about if we were talking about things that cause division in marriages. 
that we could talk about finances and we could talk about specific communication styles and we could talk about a lot of different things. But I want to talk to us about three things today. Uh, over the last month, as I've been planning for this series, I just have felt kind of gripped by this idea that we as a church need to understand God's design for marriage and the stress that that marriage brings to our lives and our need to pursue unity and to try our best to stay united in mind, in body, in spirit, because that's God's ultimate plan for our lives. It's difficult. Marriages are hard. The best marriages in the world have rocky patches. The best marriages in the world have hills to climb. The best marriages in the world have seasons that don't feel like the best marriages in the world. And the reason they become the best marriages in the world is because through those rocky patches, through those uphill climbs, through those difficult seasons, they commit to staying united. And no matter what comes through their way, what stresses or what tragedies or what difficult seasons, they commit exclusively to one another that this is going to be a relationship that takes priority over every other relationship in my life. And so you ask someone that's been married 50 years, what's it take to stay married for 50 years? And they're going to share a story with you that says, we have been persistent and we've been through a lot, but by the grace of God, he's helped us. And so I today want to talk specifically about three things that I believe cause division in marriage that ultimately... We need to be watchful of. We need to be mindful of. We need to understand that these three things can cause division in our relationships. And if we're not careful, what once was a dream relationship, what once was a relationship that was so vibrant and so on fire that caused us to feel those feelings of intense passion in life can lead to a place where you have a roommate that you don't really like, and you're living with someone that you have history with, but you don't really see them in the same way that you once saw them. That's what happens naturally over time. And if you don't want that to be your story, you have to be intentional to watch out for, to know about, to specifically and intentionally guard against some areas that can bring division in your life. The first divider for marriages that I want to talk about is a divider of sin. You're saying I wanted something a little more practical. I wanted something that, you know, I could use immediately. And, and I think that this is something you can use immediately. But let's just be real. That a marriage is a covenant relationship. It's between a man and a woman, but it's also between God. And when we fail to understand the importance of God being at the center of that relationship, that relationship doesn't have much chance of success. We see that God's wedding ceremony was taking place in a beautiful garden and everything was perfect and romantic and Adam saw the woman of his dreams and he called her woman for she was taken out of man and he now had a helper, a companion, someone to do life with. And wouldn't you know, the very next chapter, the wheels come off. It didn't take long. The very next chapter, chapter three, we're going to read that things began to unwind. And I want you to see the very source of the division that begins to happen. Genesis chapter number 3, starting in verse number 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And in this context, the serpent is representative of our enemy, our 
uh, our um, opponent, spiritually speaking, the devil, Satan. And so in the form of a serpent, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I'm sure Eve had a lot of pet peeves. I'm sure that Adam, when they went to their little nook in the garden, would leave his sandals laying where he shouldn't, and he wouldn't pick up behind himself, and they had issues, and the serpent could have said, you know, is he really the one that's supposed to be for you? You know, he does this, and you don't like this about him, and she could have attacked her direct relationship with her husband, but notice that he doesn't do that. He says, did God really say? He begins to make her question her relationship, not with her husband, but with God, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. She clearly understood God's plan for her. She clearly understood what he had asked of her, of her family. Verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, come on, let's just make one little compromise here. Did God really say that? I mean, do you really think that you're going to die if you eat from this tree? I think that God just doesn't want you to become like him. And if you would eat of this tree, then maybe you could be like God. Who doesn't want to be like God? He's not, attacking, he's not attacking her relationship with her husband directly. He's attacking her relationship with God. Verse number six. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So he goes to the woman and convinces her to compromise a relationship with God. And then she pulls her husband along with him, who, by the way, was standing by doing nothing when he should have been providing and protecting his wife. Let me say that. She's not the bad guy and he's not the victim. He stood by idly while she made a decision that affected him, and then he partook in that decision. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. Something changed in them because of sin. Something changed in them because of sin. They weren't who they were before. Sin changed them. Sin has a, a heavy price, a weighty price in life. That when we allow sin in our lives, it changes us, and not for the better, as we're sometimes tempted. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? Now, this is a pretty unique relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, that he literally would come down in the cool of the day and he would walk with them in the garden. Can you imagine as close as your relationship with God is now? If he were literally walking with you, if his presence was with you, in the garden, and you were literally in his presence. Yet this time when God came to see them, they hid because they were ashamed, because they felt naked, because they felt bare, because they failed to protect the relationship that mattered most, and it changed them. 
He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. That's Adam's response. Yeah, I heard you. I knew that you were there. I knew you were calling me, but I was afraid. I knew that I was naked, and I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Who told you that you were naked? Have I ever mentioned that? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam, like the man that he should be, stood up and he admitted his wrongdoing. Look at the next verse. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit and I ate it. Look at that. Do you see the division that's already taken place? This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. I love her. She's perfect. She's the perfect woman for me. It's her fault. She did it. She gave me that. I told her that I shouldn't eat that fruit, but she forced it down my throat. It's her fault. You need to talk with her. I'm just a victim here. And just like that, because sin entered, there's division in their relationship with one another. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman took responsibility as well. Listen to what she said. The devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's not my fault. Talk to someone else. Look, I'm just a victim here. I'm just a victim because I allowed sin to enter my life, and it crept in, and that sin changed me. And now I want someone else to take the responsibility for what I did. But with that sin comes division. And that division isn't just between you and God. That division creeps in between your relationship with your husband, with your wife, with your spouse. See, a marriage, as I said, isn't just between a man and a woman. It's, it's a covenant relationship between a man, a woman, and God. And God is the center of that relationship. And the healthiest marriages have God at the center of that relationship. And I like to think of a marriage as a triangle. With man and the woman as the base of the triangles. And God at the top of the triangles. And as you grow closer to God and your relationship with him, you also grow closer to your spouse. But the further you get from God, the further it drives you away from your spouse. That's the power of sin in your life. That's the power of allowing a temptation to become a reality, to eating a fruit that you know that you're not supposed to eat, to doing something you're not supposed to do. It causes you not only to break a relationship with God, but it causes you to start blaming one another, to start hiding things from one another, to become ashamed of things that you once had no shame with. And the perfect marriage fell apart in one chapter simply because of sin. The greatest division that you'll ever face in your marriage isn't a division that's a communication style, that's got to do with how you handle your finances, that's got to do with how you parent, that's got to do with where you're going to live or the next car you're going to buy. It's not the fight that you have over your pet peeves and the things that just get on your nerves that you've lived with for year after year and you finally are now going to tell that person how you feel. It's sin. And it's your relationship with God. And if your relationship with God isn't growing, then your relationship with your spouse is going to be really difficult to grow. Because sin causes separation, and that separation divides, and it changes you, and it changes your relationship. And you say, well, I'm not married yet, so how does this apply to me? 
And all of you who aren't married yet, this is what you need to understand. That if you want to have a great marriage, that if you want to have a godly marriage, you've got to learn now to focus on your relationship with God more so than focusing on a relationship with finding the right person. And if you'll become who God wants you to be, then he'll bring you the person that he wants you to have. But you've got to understand that when you get married, you've still got to have that relationship with God. And if you don't become the person that you want to be in your marriage, it's not going to happen after you get married. And so you should take advantage of the time before you're married to focus intently on that relationship, to understand the importance of that relationship, and to grow in that relationship so that through that relationship, you can see God bring someone into your life that's healthy and you'll become one and you'll be united because God is at the center of that relationship. Sin is a divider in marriage. Sin is a divider in the unity of God's design for a husband and a wife. And I want to challenge us to be real and raw enough with ourselves to stop pointing fingers and passing blame and to understand that we have to own our sins and we have to deal with our own sins and we have to understand the consequences of our own sins and how they affect people in our lives. And sometimes the issue isn't the issue. Sometimes you've been fighting over a certain issue and you think that that issue is going to divide things, but if you'll step back and you'll really look at things, you'll begin to see, I am not who I should be. And I am bringing who I'm not, I should not be into a relationship and expecting something perfect to come out of it. And it never happens that way. Two whole people become one. Two broken people will result in a broken marriage. Focus on your relationship with God first if you want unity in your marriage. And then you'll have a platform, a base by which you can build a strong, healthy marriage on. The second divider in marriages that I see in Scripture, and this may feel a little old-fashioned, and it may feel a little controversial for some of you, but I'm just going to read a passage of Scripture here and let you know that I believe that one of the dividers in marriages in today's culture is the roles that a husband and wife play in marriage. That when we don't fulfill the role that God's called us to to fulfill in our marriages, if we don't function the way God's called us to function in our marriage, then our marriage can't be united the way God designed for it to be united. Go with me to Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter number 5, and I'm going to start reading in verse number 21. Submit to one another... Out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is, if you have a Bible like mine, this is the verse just before a heading that says, Wives and Husbands, or Instructions for Husbands and Wives. And so a lot of times this verse doesn't get included into the advice that Paul's going to give specifically to married couples. But a lot of people believe that this should be included in that section because it's the same train of thought. And I believe that it's important for us to have this lens that we look through if the rest of what Paul's going to say here is going to make sense. So let me read it again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husband, you're to submit to your wife out of reverence for Christ. Out of worship to him, because you love him, 
you should submit to her. And wife, you should submit to your husband. Now that submission looks different. We're going to talk about that in a second. It looks different. But wives, you submit to your husband out of reverence for Christ. Okay, it's important for us to understand that we're still looking at a threefold relationship here. Husband, wife, God. Jesus Christ plays a role in your marriage. And he's either going to be included or he's not. And there's either going to be unity or there's not. So we submit to one another. That's important. Your wife is not designed just to make your life better. You haven't arrived at life because you now have someone to meet all your needs and do everything for you because you've got a role to play in this marriage. You've got something that you've got to offer. You can't just take. And your life isn't better just because you finally met the man of your dreams and he's going to take care of you and give you all the things you ever wanted in life. You have a role to play. There's a function that you have to uphold in this relationship if there's going to be unity. And let's see what those roles are. Verse number 22, wives, speaking to the women, and even if you're not married, you need to understand this is who God wants you to be when you're married. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There's been a lot of controversy in this because we live in the 21st century and, and women have more independence now than they've ever had. There are women who make more money than men, uh, which never used to be the case. There are women who hold political offices. There are women who have lots of power. And so a lot of people read this verse and they say, it's old-fashioned. Women don't have to submit to their husbands. Women, you know, are our own independent. We're strong women now, but this is just the word of God. And Paul's advice to you, if you're a wife, that you have a role to submit to your husband, not to be confused, men, with subject yourself to your husband. He's not your master, and you're not his slave, and you don't just do everything he tells you to do because you have to be obedient to him. But you're to submit to him, and a lot of people leave this off. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. How do you submit to the Lord? Completely. Wholeheartedly. Passionately. You surrender all of yourself to him because he is to you everything. And wives, you are to surrender yourself to your husband. You're to submit to him. You're to see him as a person of authority in your life. This is God's design. This is God's design. Listen to what he goes on to say. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In everything. A lot of relationships where a lot of people say, she wears the pants in that relationship. And it's a joke, but let's be honest. There are some relationships that are unhealthy. It's not about wearing pants in a relationship. It's not about who's in charge in a relationship. It's about submission in a relationship. If you want to have a great marriage, you don't have to control everything. You have to surrender everything. If you want to have a great marriage, you don't have to dictate everything. You don't have to have the power and the authority. You don't have to have the upper hand. That's not what we're fighting for here. We're fighting for surrender. We're fighting for submission. We're fighting for dying to ourselves as we would die to Christ so that our husbands can lead us as Christ led the church. 
That's how you're to submit to your husband. That's the role that you play, is that you are to be his helper. You're to submit to him in everything, that he is the head of you, just as Christ is the head of the church, that he provides the spiritual direction for the family, that you support him in that, you allow him to function in that role, that he is the head of your relationship, just as Christ is the head of the church. And you say, well, I don't like that. That doesn't feel right in today's culture. And you're going to talk to Paul about that because I didn't design marriage. But it's the truth. If you'll allow yourself to submit to your husband and allow him to function in the role God's called him to, if he'll function in that role, then you'll have a united marriage. So now, guys, doesn't it feel like we've got the upper hand here? The wives have to submit to us. We feel like, you know, we're the head of our family. That's God's design. It's true. But listen to what God calls you to do as a husband. Verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Here it comes. And gave himself up for her. She's got to submit, but you've got to die. You see this? It's not about he's got the upper hand and he controls and he dominates and he dictates and he's the authority of everything I do and I'm just a slave meeting all his needs. No, if he's a real man of God and he's a great husband, then he's dying to himself. And he's leading from a standpoint of not what he can get out of the relationship, but what he can provide for you in the relationship. If you're single, women, that's the kind of man you want. I heard a pastor tell me one time, uh, I was getting ready to officiate my first wedding. I'd never done premarital counseling, and I sat down, and we were discussing, and he was sharing some stories, and there was this particular couple that came in for counseling, and he asked one of the first questions. He asked the soon-to-be bride, what do you love most about him? He said she thought for a moment. He could see her the wheels turning in her mind, and then she said it. He's got a great truck. I love his truck. He really, he always keeps it clean. Man, it's just, I love his truck. And he thought, this is going to be a long session. It's going to be a long session. There are lots of things that you can look for in a man, but if you haven't found your husband yet, you want a man that's willing to die for you not control you, that's willing to give everything for you and love you as Christ loved the church, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkles or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You want to love yourself? Love your wife. You're one. You don't lead separate lives now. God has united you together. And the role that you play, husband, is to die for your wife. It's not about what you can get, but what you can give. You're to protect her. You're to love her. You're to give her security. You're to make sure that she's spotless, that she has no blemishes, that you're to help support her and hold her head high and make sure that she knows that she's the queen of the world. And if you'll do that, and if she'll be a wife that'll submit to you and allow you to lead your family, then you'll have a united, healthy, whole marriage. 
But isn't that the most difficult thing for us to do? Sometimes we want to make a point instead of making a difference. Sometimes we want to win the fight instead of grow through the fight. The healthiest marriages have fights, by the way. But they grow through the fights. They fight fair, they fight well, and they allow the fight to make them better for themselves. It's not about victory and who takes the spoils from the war and the battle. It's about who can surrender themselves. It's a beautiful thing how God designed husband and wife to complement one another. Verse number 29. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, here it is again, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery that I am talking about, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You see the difference in the language there? Husbands, love your wife. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, your wife needs to feel protected. She needs to feel security. She needs to feel as if you're fighting for her tooth and nail, that you're willing to give up everything for her. She needs to have that security and that love and women, your husband needs to feel respected. He doesn't need you undermining every decision that he makes and blaming him for everything that goes wrong in the marriage. He needs to know that you support him. And even in his failures, that you're there respecting him and his attempt to lead his family as God's called him to lead the family. And I just wish that we would have a nation full of men that would rise up and be spiritual leaders in their homes. We got a lot of men in this world that are good providers. They might make a lot of money, but they might not be the best spiritual leaders in the home. And as I've said, it's a three-way relationship here. And God has called the man to be the spiritual head of the household just as Christ is the head of the church. And so, men, we have a huge responsibility to lead our families in such a spiritual way. We have those roles that we have to function in and I would say that it's important for us to understand that the closer we get to God, as I've said before, the closer we get to one another. Let me challenge you men, and myself included. When's the last time you led your wife in prayer? Besides the food. When's the last time you opened up the Bible with your wife and you said, I was reading this today and I thought about you. And this is something that we need to work on in our marriage. When's the last time you were sincere in apologizing for something you knew you were right about? Because that's what Jesus did for you. And he loved you enough that even though he was right, he gave everything. That's the type of relationship you want. Women, you want a man that will lead you as God, as Christ leads the church. And men, you want a wife that will submit to you and support you and allow you to function in that role. Sin divides. Unhealthy roles divide. And finally, I want to talk about, well, let me say this before I move on to the third one. Last week, I, I took you to a scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9 to 12. Can we, can we put that up? Let me read that one more time. Ecclesiastes chapter number 4, starting in verse number 9. 
Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And I just wanted to go back and mention this. We showed you last week by using simple balloon string that you can break one balloon string, a strand, which is an individual pretty easily. But when you weave three of them together, it's more difficult to break. I just want to remind you, just remember that third strand is God. Please know that. Please understand that. That without God in the mix, you are weaker. You have greater chance of division without God in the mix. It's so important. It's so important. I sit down with couples and, and I say, you know, what's your plan for growing spiritually? I've never thought about it. I've got my relationship with God, and she's got her relationship with God, and I just will assume that she'll grow, and I'll try to grow, and things will just work out. But you've got to be intentional. You've got to have a plan, and I am not the best at this. Let me just admit that. I am not the best at this. But if we'll be intentional about it, when we grow closer to God, it makes us grow closer to one another. The third divider in relationships is sex. Sexual divisions in relationships are killers. Our society and our culture has warped the intent of sex and the purpose of sex, and it's warped the approach to sex and how we view sex, and we've been infiltrated with unhealthy teaching on sex. And some people have asked me before, why do you talk about sex in church? And I say, well, if I don't talk about sex in church, all you're going to hear about sex is from the media, from different outlets, unhealthy things, and the Bible actually has some things to say about sex, and so I think that we should read the Bible in church, and we should talk about what the Bible has to say about sex. And so I want to read a couple of passages of Scripture for you and talk to you about how sex unites you and help you understand the importance of that, and then we'll end with a, a special time together. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse number 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Sometimes we think that the church in America is really corrupt, right? Paul is speaking to a church in the first century that dealt with this. That there were sexual prostitutes that were infiltrating the church, and the church was... Encouraging sexual relationships with prostitutes. Just so you know, we're not that far gone. There's hope for us in America. Shall I unite the members of Christ with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, here it is again, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. I want you to think about this simple truth. If a man unites himself with a prostitute, he is one with her in spirit. That there is something spiritual that takes place with sex. Our culture would let us, lead us to believe that sex is just an act. It's just something physical that has nothing to do with anything and I think we could easily argue that that's not the case, that there are strings attached with sex, that sex isn't just a physical act. 
I have the privilege of being on the board of directors for a local nonprofit called The Treehouse, which is a child advocacy center, which helps try to prevent child abuse, but helps deal with victims of child abuse. And I've heard some stories, and you've probably heard some stories, of the devastation that comes with child sexual abuse. You've heard the devastation that comes when a woman is raped and taken advantage of. If sex was just an act, if it was just an action, if it was just physical, then why do our hearts hurt so much when something bad happens to a kid or to a woman who's defenseless? Because it's not just an act. It's something deeper than that. And if we approach sex as simply a physical act, then we have an unhealthy view of it because the truth is that sex is the most intimate gift that God has given us in the confines of marriage. That there is nothing that will physically in this world help you feel more united to your wife, to your husband, than an act of sex. It's God's gift. It's a beautiful thing. Sex is a good thing used in the good purpose that God designed it for. I kind of grew up in a culture where the sex would, where the church would just teach that for teenagers, sex is bad, sex is bad, don't have sex, don't have sex, sex is bad, sex is a bad thing. And I've heard of people who grew up in those environments that they got married and they, they were hesitant to have sex, even in marriage, because all they knew is that sex was a bad thing. Sex isn't a bad thing, sex is a great thing, but only in the confines of marriage. Outside of the confines of marriage, it brings division. It brings hurt, it brings pain. And it may not be in the moment, but that temporary passion fades and you're left with the emotional and the spiritual wake of sex. Sex is a powerful tool and it has to be used in the right context or to cause division. If sex were simply a physical thing, then why do so many marriages start with a lot of sex, and over time, there's not as much. I've heard someone say this to me. Bronson, you know, when you get married, every time you have sex, if you put a marble in a jar, for the first year, you're going to fill a jar up. And after that first year, every time you have sex, if you'll take a marble out, you'll never, you'll never take out all the marbles. Someone told me that. Someone told, why would someone tell me that? Because it's true. On some levels, people have sex more when they first get married. How about people who have sex before they're married and then they get married and they never have sex? Because it's deeper than just a physical act. Because when you're at odds, when you have arguments, you don't have sex. It's not just physical. It's emotional. There's a tie there. and You don't want to unite with someone that you're feeling divided with. Do you understand that? This is, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. And the healthiest marriages involve sex. I was kind of sharing a few thoughts with Lindsay this week as we were talking about this message. And she said, well, let me just ask you, a married couple, how many times should they have sex a week? I said, seven at least. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. It's not clear cut in scripture. But I know that husband and wife who never have sex 
aren't a healthy, united marriage. Unless there are, you know, there are exceptions. I mean, come on, if there's physical things that prevent things, I understand that, it's cool. But it's an intimate part of a healthy marriage. Verse number 18. Flee from sexual immorality. I used to think this only applied to single people. I used to have this myth in my head that once I get married, I'll never deal with sexual immorality again. I can't wait to get married. That's why I want to get married, so I'll never struggle with this again. But sexual immorality isn't just reserved for single people. We know that. We know that, right? All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. No sexual immorality. If you're not married, if you are married, resist that sin and have a healthy view and approach to sex in the confines of marriage. It's a deep, compassionate, purposeful tool that God's given us. It's important to understand that it unites. And when you start uniting with multiple people, you're not a whole person anymore. So you've got to, if you're single, you've got to protect your sexuality. It's so huge. You want to be able to offer yourself wholly to the man of your dreams, to the woman of your dreams, so that you can be united together. But then once we get married, it's kind of like, all the frills go away and you start living life together and the shiny wears off. And that's why Paul goes on in the next chapter, chapter number 7, starting in verse 2, to remind married people of this. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. He's speaking of sex here. And likewise, the wife to her husband... He calls it a marital duty, that this is part of God's design for your marriage. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. Do you understand God's design? When you become one flesh, your body isn't just yours anymore. Sex is such a microwave mentality in our culture and and a lot of people see sex through the lens of getting something for yourself getting something for yourself but I just need to remind you that Paul says if you want to have healthy sex that unites you in a whole way your body doesn't belong to you it belongs to your husband as well as you so you're not to do anything your husband wants to do if it makes you feel unwhole, but you're also not to withhold things from your husband for whatever reason. I don't want to go into too much detail there. Let's keep going. Verse number eight. Actually, verse number five. This is important. Not my words. Don't get mad at me. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again 
so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God's will for your marriage is that you understand that your body doesn't belong to you alone and you're not to deprive your spouse. Because when you do, outside of mutual consent, Satan will tempt you. And there are temptations that come from unfilled needs that could have been avoided if there weren't unhealthy relationships that caused division that affected sex. I'll just say it that way. God's word, don't deprive one another except by mutual consent. Verse number eight. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Remember, Paul was a man that traveled. He had missionary journeys to go in different places, that he was on the road a lot. For him, having a spouse wasn't his best plan or God's plan for him. But, verse 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's just be honest. A lot of people have real struggles when it comes to the area of their sexuality. And for them to stay married, unmarried forever would be a really difficult place for them to be. And Paul says, it's better for you to marry than to burn with passion. Sex brings unity. It brings wholeness. In fact, sex consummates marriage. In fact, so much so that to the degree that some theologians would even argue when God sees marriage as taking place. Some would say that it's when you're legally married in the land you're in. Some would say it's when you actually have sex because that's what God sees as uniting you together. It's that powerful of a tool. And I would say to you if you're single that you can't use that as an excuse for sexual immorality. Well, God just sees it as married and we're not married yet but we'll just go ahead and have sex and then he'll see us as married because he clearly outlines what sexual immorality is. Okay, so that argument doesn't work. I've heard some people make it. Your marriage, your relationship will be divided by sin, by unhealthy roles, and by sex, or I guess we could say lack of it. And those three things can either make your life together unified, not exclusively, or they can make them divided. And what I want for us is to understand the importance of being united in marriage, in that relationship, and understanding that you're saving yourself for that relationship. Lord, right now I pray a special blessing over every married couple in this room. My prayer is that you would unite them in heart and soul. Unite us in heart and soul. Make us one as you see us in one. Where life's gotten in the way and divisions have crept in and maybe we've become people that we shouldn't be and together we've become a couple that we shouldn't be. I pray that you would heal our hearts that you would mend relationships, that if there are relationships on the brink of destruction, that you would sweep in and with your loving embrace, bind hearts back together again. I pray for marriages that are thriving in this season. Would you guard and protect those marriages and unite them even closer? 
ultimately, Father, would you allow the reality that when we draw close to you, we draw close to one another to become ingrained in our hearts. I pray for every man, every husband here, Lord, that we would be spiritual leaders in our home, that we would make sure that prayer and your word and the wisdom that's found in it is at the center of how we lead our families. Pray for every wife here that they would feel secure in the love provided by their husband, that they would feel protected, that they would feel cherished. I pray that they would also support their husband in such a godly way that would give him respect and submit to the direction that he's bringing to the family. I pray for every single man, woman, and student in this room today that they would understand the importance of guarding their heart from sin, that they would understand the role that they're called to play when they get married one day, that they would guard their heart when it comes to sex. And ultimately, I pray for unity in marriages, that you would mend and make whole, that you would bind together what God has put together. I pray that no man would separate. And for those who may be in the room who are facing the results of a marriage that may not have worked, I pray that you would heal those hearts as well, Father. That you would set them on the path to being everything that you've called them to be so that one day they can be who you want them to be in a healthy and whole marriage. I believe you for it. I trust you for it. And ask as we become healthy in our marriages that we would become healthy as a church and we would see God do some amazing, incredible things in us and through us. And we give you all the glory for that in Christ's precious name. And everybody said, amen.